Welcome to Virgin Territory, a podcast brought to you by SHIP. Each episode brings you new guests and new topics. We ask all the questions you are dying to know, from dating, sexual education and wellness, to kink, polyamory, and everything in between. Now please welcome your host, Vima Manfredo. Welcome back, everyone, for another episode of Virgin Territory. Today, we have a very special guest. Uh, We have Gwen from our board. Welcome, Gwen. Hey, Fima. Happy to be here. (laughs) How are you doing? I'm doing great. I, uh, as we talk about often, I feel like (laughs) on the board, I'm a Virgo, and it's Virgo season, so I'm feeling very in my element. It is definitely Virgo season. I'm feeling it. I'm too far away from Virgo, though. (laughs) Because not everyone that listens to us goes to our board meetings, I guess we should start with an introduction. So why don't you introduce yourself for our listeners? Sounds great. I mean, if you're not at our board meeting, you're missing out. But I'm just (laughs) kidding. But um, yeah, so I'm Gwen, Gwen Rosen. Um, I'm a sex and media geek uh, who's someone who's really passionate about educating others through dismantling sexual stigma through thoughtful media. Um, I am also a public health student. I'm currently getting my master's in public health from Columbia University. Um, Yeah, and I'm really um, passionate about sex education and sexual health. And I've been exploring that passion with uh, SHIP for the past uh, about six years now, which is pretty wild. That is scary. It is scary. Um, it's scary. Um, for for those of you that don't know, our boards have an expiration date, and realizing that you're closer to that than I want you to be, it doesn't make me very happy. Well, to to, to quell your anxieties, the six years is uh, also including my my intern years. So I started Ooh. with Chef uh, when I was still the CSPH uh, when. Back in 2015, right after I graduated undergrad and I worked as an intern for a while. So I've been involved since then. And then I started on the board, I think, in 2017. So don't, so I still have some time. Okay, good, good. You gave me a heart attack. We already have a couple of our board members are against that deadline already. So having a third one would have been panicky. Yes, it's a good sign when your board is. Um, Dreading their uh, their end date of their term rather than counting down the minutes. Uh, I think it's a, yeah, a that's good, good sign of what kind of organization we are. Yeah, and since we're talking about the organization, I'll just have to mention that we have a, a shiny new website. We know shipdone.org and you can go and visit us and see all of our lovely faces and you can find the link to this podcast too. I had to do the plug because we're talking about ship right now. We got a plug. We, I mean, uh, as we're going to talk about more, I'm a publicist at heart and I'm always there for, for the plug. Exactly. Which brings us to the first topic we wanted to explore, which is why does sets ed have a PR problem? Yeah, so this is kind of my why I get up in the morning question. Uh, so a little more background about me. But, um, before I started grad school, I was a publicist for many years, um, specifically with sexuality brands. And I decided to go to grad school to bring some of my communication skills 
to sex education through a public health lens. Um, and I really think of sex ed's PR problem as kind of three main buckets. So first of all, it's a topic that um, people often aren't comfortable talking about. So then it doesn't get talked about, um, which is like exactly what uh, Viva you do here uh, on Virgin Territory is try to make more spaces. And it's what we do at SHIP. We try to make spaces uh, to have these conversations. But so often people aren't having them at all, um, which then kind of leads to bucket two, which the one time maybe you do get to talk about sex ed, you might get some really shame-filled narrative that can really stick with you. So it's like PR 101 that very often you only get 30 seconds to you know pitch your product or uh, talk about your client, whatever it is. And when it comes to sex ed, there are so many people who their 30-second pitch might have been a really sex negative or really abstinence-only push um, about what good sex or good sex ed looks like. Um, and then the third thing is, if you do get the opportunity to um, be in a space or have access to shame-free sex ed, like the sex ed that SHIP provides, so often the educators or the organizations who are providing that are blocked from sharing their message. So uh, organizations like SHIP have a really hard time promoting our workshops, our content on platforms like Facebook and Instagram, um, you know, and many other uh, mediums where it's not easy to access us. So the harder it is to reach people, the harder it is to share our message. So it really is a communications problem, the way I see it, um, more than anything of why we have such lacking sex ed uh, here in the U.S. and many other places. Yeah, that's good. I mean, if if you think about the first time you talked about sets, which is probably when you were in elementary school, you went to your parental figures and probably asked the questions, where did my little sister come from? Or mm -hmm. something along those lines. Or if you ever see a baby for the first time, it's like, where do babies come from? And your first impression will happen right there when your parents are going to tell you, go talk to your mom, go talk to your dad. Um, you're too young to talk about that. Those are only adult things and, and really deprives that, that child from having those age-appropriate conversations with their parental figures of body autonomy, of exploring your own body, of knowing consent on how to enforce your consent, how to respect other people uh, when they tell you, no, they don't want to hug or vice versa. So that that is basically your first impression on like sets. It's a bad thing because mom and dad or parental figure will not talk to me about that. Right. And that's how it gets so cyclic because uh, those you know, avoidance responses of, oh, go ask uh, the other parent, uh, I don't want to have this conversation, oftentimes comes from a parent's own uh, 
shame, you know, or something that they've picked up from their own adolescence of why this is a bad conversation to have or uncomfortable conversation, or just even an awkward conversation. And it's very human to want to avoid awkward things. So that just kind of perpetuates the cycle of, oh, we shouldn't talk about this. Um, and I think from like a organization and company perspective, it's the same thing. We never, you know, we so rarely see uh, an organization talking openly about sex or companies who have a very sex positive message. So that becomes the norm. And then it becomes the outlier when you do see that. And it brings up, a, oh, something must be wrong. This must be uh, you know, rated R, or it must be adult only, or uh, again, whatever, like, uh, whatever you associate with sex that uh, for many people often has a negative connotation. Um, and it just perpetuates that. So yeah, I think it's really, you know, those little moments of when your child asks you, where do babies come from? However, you answer the question, even little things of like, what facial expression did you make when that question was asked? If you have a look of horror on your face, <laughs> that's already communicating that this is a bad conversation or something scary, or I'm about to find out something that maybe I didn't want to know. Um, so, but uh, I think it's such an important part of what we do at SHIP of, uh, you know, coming from a place of empathy of, of course, you don't know how to have that conversation because no one ever had it with you. And that's why we focus on adults. Um, to really try to break that cycle of, well, what if, okay, maybe you didn't get what you needed as a child or as a teenager, but what if we can revitalize your sex education as an adult? And what if you could pass that on, not even to your children, even just to the rest of your community? Um, I really believe like, you know, I'm a publicist by trade, but I'm really think anyone can be a publicist and uh, it just in the things that they're passionate about. And it's so important for um, other people to, uh, especially when it comes to sex, to like be the publicist of their community of spreading sex positive messages, because the more we hear it, the more it becomes normalized. Yeah. And you can become that, that beacon of knowledge for your community or for your, your family and for your friends where they they'll come to you for the questions, the answers to the questions that they dare not ask anybody else. And if you have in your, in your toolbox, you have that wealth of knowledge to organizations like SHIP and other organizations, then you can dig in and go like, I know the answer to these questions because I already asked them a few years ago, or I don't know the answer to that particular question, but I know where you can find it in a way that is not going to shame you or look down on you because you don't know the question or because the question is quote unquote embarrassing. Exactly. I think that's so important. And I think that last point you just made of it, it doesn't mean always having the answer and it doesn't even mean having overcome every single facet of your own sexual shame. I think that's a very long process, but doing these things in little bits of the more we say, oh, I don't know, I don't talk about things like that. And it's, or the less we say that rather, and the more we say things like, uh, I'm not sure, but like, let's find an answer together. Let me point you to someone who can help. Um, it's really a game changer. Yeah, absolutely. It, a simple thing of like, oh, I know this sets educator. I follow them on social media and they have a whole website or they have a whole 
course load um, that you can go and take on that particular topic and, and knowing where to find things and knowing that there's, there's no shame in wanting more information and learning more. But there is still some topics that are a little bit shameful because it has been perpetuated over and over again. So what topics, what sexuality topics you think need a rebrand? Oh my gosh, so many. Yeah. <laughs> um, so many, Top but so five. many that are also in progress. Like, um, you know, I, 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 some do come to mind, but uh, alongside that come to mind some really incredible people who really have been making waves and trying to change this. So I think worth caveating that this is all a, a work in progress, but certainly um, not that no one has. <laughs> uh, people have had this thought before I have. Um, but I, I think the first thing that comes to mind is sex itself. I think, first of all, when you say sex education, a lot of people are only think of the act of sex. And then when you think of the act of sex, you only think of, um, you know, penis and vagina, uh, very heteronormative sex. So um, I think the first step is often, first of all, explaining that uh, sexuality, you know, I really, I, I like to refer to it as we do sexuality education, because I think that does encompass so much more than the act of sex. Your sexuality is so much more than what, just what you do in the bedroom. Um, and then also helping folks recognize that not everybody is doing the same things in the bedroom. And there's such a wider definition of sex. That's so much more fun and exciting <laughs> to think about um, once you take the word sex out of whatever maybe you learned in your health class textbook that hasn't been updated since like 1985 that just is, says that sex is uh, when a penis enters a vagina which again just it's so much more right um and then to that point of you know where that works in sex education i think um, when people hear the word sex, they think of an adult act. And then when you start talking about, oh, that kids need sex education, people get really scared of like, what are you showing my child or right. what's age appropriate? Um, and again, sexuality is so much more than just sex and sexuality education really starts at you meant you just mentioned this before Vima of like, consent and good touch, bad touch, and being able to uh, understand bodily autonomy and that uh, being able to express when a boundary, when someone is touching you or even saying something to you that doesn't feel good to you, uh, good relationships, good friendships, even uh, all of that uh, is part of what sex education should embody. Um, and that needs to start young. That needs to start as early as kindergarten. So I think taking what we typically think of sex and thinking a little bit more broadly when we say sex education would really help to kind of uh, rebrand uh, what sex education is for people of all ages and why it's important. Right. I, I like to think about especially for for. Um, younger people, um, children and teenagers. It's not just sex education and sexuality education, but it's also relationship education where yeah. you're learning in your, when was your first crush? 12, 13, maybe? 
I was a late bloomer, so I don't know if those ages are are too old. Um, well, that's the whole point. There is no normal. Like it, right. it's whenever it happens for you, yeah, exactly. But I didn't know how to navigate a crush. Like I just have this infatuation with this other human, and I don't know what's going on. And if I had that education at around that time where they explain how to navigate those first relationships. And how to be not an adult about it, but how to be mature about it and not be a pesky little kid. (laughs) That would have been very helpful because then you wouldn't have been crying in a corner because that person wasn't even looking at you because they didn't know because you didn't know how to communicate. And it would have solved a lot of my drama. Totally. And those things really stick with you. Like adolescence is such a formative period and it really does influence how you then show up in your adult relationships. If you had a really scarring experience in a middle school relationship, or even if you had a really great, you know, experience with a first love, um, you know, taking that seriously is important. I, but you know, you're like bringing up so many <laughs> middle school memories for me. <laughs> uh, but I remember feeling so invalidated of that. I was, I had a very serious boyfriend in middle school. We dated for over a year. He's now one of my best friends. Um, But, and I remember my parents, like they just did not know what to do with that information. Like it was because serious boyfriend, I'm doing air quotes and, and boyfriend in itself, it just didn't meet the age I was at. And I think they were so scared to engage with it. Um, but really all I needed them to do was validate that I really liked this person. I really wanted to spend time with them. Um, and that's what was important to me. Um, so again, it really does get to some of the language things like, oh, I came home and said this person was my boyfriend and that produced a scary reaction. And if we could think more critically about some of these words and terms and, um, just what the concepts mean at different stages of life, uh, it might help us to all have more open conversations about it. Yeah, exactly. And going a little further on that, if if we would have had a conversation about heteronormativity, heterosexuality is not the norm. So heteronormativity shouldn't be the thing to teach. Um, Then a lot of kids that came out later in life, especially millennials and genetics, would have had more information on what were they feeling and understanding having that language of like, oh, I may not be straight because I like that woman over there. And understanding that that's something that you could do instead of maybe my brain is broken, which is part of the thought process that went through my head. Uh, We're going back in memories a lot. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. I know. I think about the teenagers who have like TikTok um, these days and, you know, the the way that education is so changing of, okay, maybe they're in a school that is still teaching um, that marriage is between a man and a woman or like whatever bullshit um, they're saying, but they (laughs) go on their phones and they can go on platforms like TikTok and see lots of queer people just you know, it's such a interesting medium because it's people really just sharing a bit about their experience or a bit about their day in this like cool video format. Um, and I think like the queer community on TikTok is just so amazing. Of I can't imagine how validating that would be as a young person just to see like 
oh, this is, there are other people in the world who feel like I do or who feel a little bit like I do, but I feel a little bit different than that. And then the next video also looks a little different than that, that it's not just one thing. I think like the variety of representation um, is really like just as total uh, a total game changer. So I'm I'm like really excited about that. I'm also scared of it because I get so sucked into TikTok. I have to like delete it off my phone every so oh, often. I was going to say we should be friends. I, I'm, I'm already <laughs> in TikTok. But uh, yeah, I, I agree with you. It's that, that wealth of information of seeing people that are living their truths and they're living authentically and they're happy and they have fulfilling lives and somewhat fulfilling careers most of them so seeing all that and then you look at yourself and go like maybe i'm not broken maybe this is normal it's just different than what my household or my school or my church is telling me but i'm still a normal kid that is so empowering and it could save their lives absolutely no i truly believe that's like life-saving work yeah and that makes me think of like some other um sexuality topics where representation is such an important part um another topic that needs a rebrand um would be stis sexually transmitted infections um that's another place where i think social media has become such an incredible resource of just the very act of seeing somebody else on social media who might be public about their sti status and you know, I think so many people have lived with an STI and never actually met another person where they know their STI, you know, they're, they're both uh, out about it because it's often just coded as such a shameful thing. Um, so for that person who thinks they're the only person in the world with herpes, spoil alert, they're not. Um, but getting to see like an Instagram account where someone's talking about their lived experience with herpes um, is so incredible. And I think just really does so much to take away the shame and then also just answer questions because of course you have questions, um, about, uh, you know, if you get a diagnosis of, uh, lived with STI, like herpes or even, um, something like chlamydia or gonorrhea, and you have no other avenue to learn about these things, it's so helpful to have a resource you can go to and then also validating just as a human being to see someone sharing that experience with you. Um, and I hope that more of that really results in, uh, you know, re- people rethinking, you know, there's just a million horrible jokes of that STIs make a person dirty or bad or only a certain type of person gets an STI. And that's absolutely not true. Um, and I hope the more visibility we have for things like that, we can start thinking of STIs as, um, you know, the way we would think of someone if they got strep throat. We don't judge their moral character because they got strep throat. We ask how they're feeling. Right. You bring them the remedies like um, soup, I think. <laughs> exactly. For strep throat, I don't know if you're going to have soup for strep. But yeah, it's like it's um, morally neutral. Having an STI is morally neutral you do need to manage it the same way that you will manage having pneumonia, where if you don't take care of it, then it can consume your life. But that doesn't mean that you were a bad person because you got pneumonia or because you had cancer. It's the same. You're not a bad person because you got gonorrhea or you got HIV or you got herpes. So those those are definitely another topic that 
that needs to have a rebrand and a, and a better outlook that is more neutral, more useful than just shaming the person because they're now not clean. And I'm using air, air, air quotes for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I'm actually really uh, <laughs> hopeful is maybe a bit extreme. I'm cautiously optimistic of what this moment uh, in the pandemic and what COVID can do for the the perception of STIs. I think, uh, you know, the way we've been talking about getting tested um, and asking our friends and family about their testing status and their vaccine status and just opening up those conversations. Um, of course, I know not everyone is on board with having those conversations <laughs> openly or is not on the same page about uh, what uh, the correct course of action is, to put it lightly. But I do think in some circles, I wonder if that's going to open up, uh, make it a little bit easier to talk about the other testing you might be doing regularly, like STI testing, um, because we've gone through this practice of uh, telling our friends and family when we're expressing our boundaries about socializing, about our testing and vaccination status. Um, and also just understanding from like an epidemiological standpoint of, uh, you know, COVID is something we're living with and probably will live with for the long term. Um, and if that open up opens up someone's mind of you can understand that because that's been a collective lived experience, maybe you'll have an easier time understanding what it's like for someone to live with an STI um, that that's just something that they manage, they deal with, and that it's not the only facet of their being, just like for all of us, we've you know, COVID's been a big part of our lives for the past two years, but it's not the only part of who we are as humans. We've figured out ways to um, continue living. So I, I'm curious to see <laughs> what happens with that. Um, I think it's, it's putting a lot of faith in humanity and a lot of faith in uh, people's acceptance of sexuality topics but i am cautiously optimistic we can we can definitely be optimistic but <laughs> that that's part of the going back to pr and, and pring yourself um let's put it that way where and i'm digging back back in my dating days where i would go down the list of hey my last sexual partner was x months ago or however long time it was i was tested during this time and my results were blah 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 and these were all the tests that that were run because also you don't get tested for every sti under the the sun when you go and ask for an sti panel right um, so that was usually part of my spiel when the relationship was getting to a point where you may get physical was like hey these are the things that i do this this is the breath control that i use how i you and I think for sexuality in general, it's always a good idea that if you don't know how to start a conversation, start with yourself, where start mm -hmm. where you know your own information, offer that up first, and then you can ask, hey, and how about you? Because it's easier than just going, tell me about your testing status without initiating that conversation with yourself first. Yeah, that's such a good point, right? We have to like demonstrate these things. And uh, it's like it, being a good example 
but also just providing an example because many people have never seen that in practice. And I think uh, that's another <laughs> sex education <laughs> communication problem of, um, you know, maybe folks have heard that they should get tested regularly or that they should share their STI status with their partner. But that's a really different conversation than actually modeling, okay, what does that conversation look like? We, If you've never even seen an episode on TV that, uh, that shows that, it's going to seem like a really foreign concept to you, um, which I will plug um, very quickly. Um, one of my best friends works on this incredible show on Showtime called Work in Progress. And I was like over the moon to see, um, I think it's in season one, um, just an awesome conversation about a herpes disclosure um, happening, you know, in a way that they were both, both characters were taking it seriously, but it also wasn't like the whole point of the episode, like it didn't come off as a back to school special, which so often it does. Um, and just two characters having an honest conversation about boundaries before having their first sexual experience together. Um, it was really incredible to see. And I was like, more of that. <laughs> yeah. Ma, if, if we're going back in time a little bit again, um, one of my first experiences in TV of seeing that type of conversation was on an old MTV show that I'm trying to rack my brain on the name. It was something like on unbedded or something like that. And oh. it was following a, a few different couples, fictional couples. It wasn't a real reality TV show. And I'm trying to remember the name and, and it will come to me after we stop recording. But it was an MTV show original and they would model different relationships and they had not only gay relationships and a lesbian relationship on this on this show, but they also had people having those conversations about STI status in a way that was neutral, like the drama of the show did not come from that conversation. It was more like drama between humans that was normal. Right. <laughs> That's so cool. Oh, I'll have to that up. Yeah, it's a, I was watching it maybe in middle school. So it's, it's back in the day. <laughs> yeah, MTV um, was definitely host of many formative <laughs> sexual uh, thoughts and feelings. Um, what was that show? Next, I think that was on MTV where they were on the bus. And you had oh, to like, yeah. I mean, not like all good, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not all good thoughts and feelings, but um, yeah, that was like a very formative, oh, this is how dating works, which this was not how dating <laughs> works. So I'm glad to hear like of a positive <laughs> representation because I think things like MTV and uh, I wrote my thesis in undergrad all about how Seventeen Magazine was like the core of my sex education growing up like those media pieces are really important especially if you're not having those conversations with the adults in your life getting sex education in school um like the media really matters oh yeah between mtv and early internet those, <laughs> those were my sources for for sex education that's all i had and a very very old book from the library um at my school that was about sets which was modern for when it was made because the first chapter when they're talking about the mechanics of sets it was a a, heter a hetero couple but they didn't show the woman it was a whole like 
I wanted to say lewd, but not like lewd, very descriptive. <laughs> the whole way between their, when they went to dinner for their date, all the way to when they got into bed and had the sets and they explained the whole mechanics and everything. Wow. But they didn't have the woman magically orgasm by PIV only, which was for the hmm. times 1999 or 2000. That was mind boggling. Yeah. Like, oh, they're actually showing a woman that can orgasm by external stimulation. Yeah. And oh, I see. Obviously, the, the language was gendered completely gendered because there was no talk about a non-binary folks or anything like that mm-hmm. um but it was like if i recall correctly and the book is still downstairs um, <laughs> they're having sets the the guy says he's about to finish she says go ahead and then he helps her orgasm afterwards wow. and i'm like you can do that because that's really cool <laughs> that's amazing oh my gosh I'll have to to show you that book um and I'll guess I put it on on Instagram yeah I know I'll have to link that for folks for a good uh, sex education book wow that's really amazing for 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 that year that so far away and when those conversations weren't being had I thought it was pretty open now we see it and it's like yeah what else is new but back in the day it was like whoa you that's pretty cool definitely but yeah I mean and I think there you know we've come a long way but there still is a lot of work to do on that front um you know another topic area I think about a lot is uh the vibrator space and um pleasure products um you know there's a lot of uh a lot of double standards, I guess is the best way to put it, of uh, the way that tools that are used mostly by uh, people with vulvas compared to tools used by people with penises are perceived from like a business standpoint. So for example, like a lot of vibrator brands get blocked from advertising on Facebook and on Instagram, um, even like public transport, um, like the New York City subway which is a story I worked on um, back in my publicist days. Um, But on the flip side, something like an erectile dysfunction pill can advertise in all of those same places. So I still think like, you know, that's all to me related to the narrative of if we're really understanding that sex for most people is, you know, even if you're having uh, PNV sex, that it's not happening like it probably happens in your favorite romantic comedy where <laughs> suddenly, you know, <laughs> uh, it just magically happens. You know, there's for many people often a battery operated a device involved or at the very least, you know, just some other maneuvering. Um, but yeah, like recognizing that to me it has a direct effect on those businesses. Like, I think if that narrative was even more pervasive than uh, we then advertising, uh, the people who make those decisions would have a different opinion on the validity of those products and um, thinking more critically about, you know, of course, they're pleasure products, but they're also health tools. Like they're also 
um, they're really critical parts of sexual experience, not just like a fun gag gift at a bachelorette party, which they can be those too. And that's cool. But um, yeah, I'd like to see more recognition for that. So maybe they all need to read that book, Vima. I don't know. <laughs> I think so. I think so. Maybe maybe we need to write a, a new chapter where, where the com- their conversation is not so PIV and so gendered, but definitely heading in that direction. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I love that. But going on on the conversation of vibrators, the other thing that needs a little bit of a rebrand is toys for men are also very looked down upon. Yeah. The the butt of the joke has always been like, oh, that guy has no girlfriend. He needs a flashlight where that's completely unfair to people with penises because we don't look bad in a general sense of if someone has a vibrator for, for their vulva. But if if someone has a vibrator or a sleeve or whatever it is for their penis or it's an anal toy then or prostate stimulator, then all hell breaks loose because then he's looked down upon. And totally. That, yeah. that also needs to change. Yeah, absolutely. And I think too, you know, even I think many um, people with vulvas who have a uh, pleasure product, I think there's still work to be done of like nothing. You're not broken for needing that. Nothing's wrong with you. Um, and explaining to their partners <laughs> very often that you're not doing anything wrong and you're not threatened by this uh, device. But yeah, you bring up such a good point about men's um, sex toys for men and sex toys for penises. Um, because I, I think there's also such a myth that like men's sexuality is simple. Like the mechanics of uh, getting a penis uh, or a person with a penis to orgasm is that's no problem. Like we all know how to do that. And like a uh, vulva is mysterious and complex and you have to like discover the, um, I don't know, the secret sauce. And I think like sometimes vulvas are more simple than we make them out to be. And then also sometimes like just that there's so much to explore with bodies with penises, like and I think that gets discounted a lot because it's like, oh, we all know how to do that. Like, or, uh, you know, uh, men figure that out at a young age of how to, um, of how to orgasm. And then you just do that for the rest of your life. But yeah, what if we, um, wouldn't it be so much more fun and exciting if for all bodies, we thought of it as like a playground to explore that there's so much to discover and, products are a really great way to do that. And they're, it says nothing about, you know, the status of your sex life at the current moment to bring one of those to try. Um, and it says nothing about your relationship. It's just like a cool new thing to explore. Right. I, and I love the way that you say it. It's, it's, it's a playground. Yeah. And if you approach intimacy and you approach sets of any kind as that fun exploratory oh let's see if you like this today kind of thing in terms instead of going like well you like when I do ABC so for the rest of our partner life I will do ABC in that order yeah that's a snooze fest yeah how boring <laughs> <laughs> I did this great um this great event uh with one of my clients back in the day 
uh, where we focused on sex and age. And uh, we had a bunch of folks over the age of 50 come and do this panel. And every single one of them said that their best sex was during this time in their life, like later in life, that this myth of like, oh, when you're young and in your 20s, like that's when like your body is at its best or whatever. They were like, bullshit, like the life, <laughs> like it only gets better. Um, and that may or may not like be true in practice for all people. But I do think it's just like there's it, it, it reminds people that there is so much to explore and there's no way you've even covered all of it yet. But like instead of being like, oh, that's scary or even frustrating, like I think there is a different way to approach it of like, oh, my God, that's so exciting. Like for the rest of my life, I'm going to get to discover new things about my body or if your partner, new things about your partner's body. Like how cool. (laughs) Right. And your body changes throughout the years. And that's something that we always fear. But looking at the changes in your body as a new adventure of like, oh, so what I used to do in my 20s is really not rocking my boat in my 30s or in my 40s. That means I get to go on an adventure and find what rocks my boat and what works best, what new products have been invented since 10 or 12 years ago that I can now use, like the litany of lubes that are out there now. Yeah. Before you only had KY and (laughs) that's about it. Baby oil, maybe. Um, And now you go even to Walmart or you go to CVS and you see an array of different lubes of all different types. And you can go and explore which one is your favorite, which one works for you, which one works for your partner or partners. Absolutely. Yeah. And I hope that like the visibility of that, that it is something that's at your local store, or maybe you see a product that you've seen on Instagram, or even you've seen an influencer talk about it on Instagram or whatever platform. And that recognition and that out in the openness that you don't have to go to a dark basement store with no windows to get that product, which can be fun in its own way. Like no, no shame to like a classic sex store. But I do think there's an accessibility of folks who that's not their comfortable shopping space, or they just need that reassurance that they're not doing something wrong and dirty to bring it into the light a little bit, um, literally and figuratively, um, (laughs) that yeah, it makes it a little bit more okay. Um, yeah. And I'm really excited about like the person aspect of that too, of, I think for a long time products like glue, you know, who's the face of KY? I have literally no idea, but we're seeing so many more of these brands who their spokespeople are out in the open. They have a face and a name and they're talking about what, um, talking about their products, talking about what they're passionate about. And I think that connecting that human aspect to, um, to sexuality education and sexuality products, like helps people see themselves of, you know, I am a person who has sex and this is a person who has sex and we can talk about these things together rather than like, I have to sneak away and secretly buy this thing that 
I, I really love to use, but it's, but it's weird that I do. So I can't, I can't be open about it. Right. And it may or may not work because no one, when you walked into some stores, no one tells you like, oh, by the way, you're buying a silicon lube. You should not be using that with your silicon toy unless you want right. to destroy both. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And <laughs> I don't know. Right. I don't know that anyone's telling you that in a Walmart, which makes, uh, you know, what we do right. <laughs> continue to be important. So people continue to have good information. I mean, I'd love if they had that in a Walmart. Like, how cool would that be if you had like, be cool. <laughs> a concierge um, helping you uh, select your products? And and again, that's why I never want to um, put down the the sex shop experience because uh those are where I think some of the experts of the experts are. Right. Um, but just being uh, realistic that that's not everybody's uh, that's not everybody's preferred shopping experience. And also not everyone has access to that. Like, um, you know, those stores aren't everywhere. Um, and those are another area that often gets blocked, as we know from our history um, with ship when we were the center, uh, we were very close to not opening because of some pushback of that. Oh my gosh, this place of vibrators is about to open on this street. Um, and some pushback from the community. So, um, yeah, I think it, it, it is a balancing act of that accessibility in that mainstream aspect, but then also, um, making sure that with mainstream, is alongside that is continued good education and continued access to education um, because folks still need it. Yeah, exactly. Um, so you bring up a great segue uh, about Chips Rebrand, which we touched a little bit on, on this podcast when we changed the name of the podcast or the sponsorship name <laughs> of the podcast, but we haven't actually talked too much about it. So let's, let's dig in. Let's dive into the ship and see. Let's dive in. Yeah. No, I think this is such a, you know, and you know, for Santa Cruz, it's such a exciting time for us, but also like a, a, a scary, maybe it's too intense, but, uh, you know, with change comes mixed feelings. Um, but yeah, I mean, changing our name, I, I just think it's such a, it fits so well to our conversation for folks to know, uh, you know, changing our name to ship. And if you read our letter from our lovely executive director, Alicia, um, it, it really came from a PR problem, from a branding problem that we've been having since our inception um, of what our former name, the Center for Sexual Pleasure and Health, um, while it very much encompassed what we do and what we stand for, um, also posed some problems. Um, to name a few, we were denied insurance coverage because of our name. Um, we've been denied funding countless times from people who've told us things like, we love what you do, but I, we can't fund um, or I can't advocate for your funding because of the name. Um, we talked a little bit earlier too about censorship on social media platforms. Um, you know, all sexuality brands, I think, have encountered this in some way or another, but especially with a name like the Center for Sexual Pleasure and Health. There was just no hiding from um, Facebook's policies, however unfair they are. Um, and on email, too, we got filtered, you know, spam filters filter for sexual content. And it would say this email is from the Center for Sexual Pleasure and Health. And all of that really hinders our ability to reach people with medically accurate 
culturally inclusive and pleasure-informed sex education. So we made a decision to rebrand um, and to change our name. Um, so SHIP does still include our pleasure mission. Um, SHIP stands for Sexual Health Includes Pleasure. Um, but the advantage of SHIP is that we can use just SHIP and we can right. write that on things um, that so we don't so we can use the pleasure piece uh, when we want to. But we also have ways to just navigate some of these bureaucratic hurdles that were so difficult before. Um, so, you know, basically just a little more subtlety for funders and other stakeholders um, while trying to stay true to who we are. Um and I think it's also important to note that SHIP really came from community input. We didn't just decide one day, oh, we're going to be SHIP. It really took a lot of time to hear from our community what would be a name that really encompasses our um, the our fun nature, our um, ability to provide an inclusive environment, um, the safety and trust that people put in us to get their sex education resources from, um, and after many months, um, and also uh, with the blessing from our founder, um, Megan Andio, we uh, decided to change our name. So it really was a, a quite a process, and um, but I think just a good example of the complexity of good branding. It's um, not it's not always simple, but um, yeah, I'm really, I'm really hopeful for this next chapter for us and what this new branding is going to be able to, um, provide for us for, um, getting us the resources and the support we need to do what we do. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the magic things that we, that our community came up with was using the name ship to not stand for anything legally. So our, our legal name is CHIP, not an acronym, but we have that acronym as our tagline now. So we can still be true to ourselves, like you said, of like we are including in our sex education, we are including pleasure at the forefront because that is so such a deep part of what we are as an as a organization. But we can also use, like you said, the, the name SHIP without being attached to anything that right off the bat is going to get censored. It's really difficult when your own name or your own brand name is the one thing that is being censored because you can't really navigate around that. We've changed how we talk in, in Instagram and Facebook to try and navigate around the censorship. But when your own name is the one being censored, that was very difficult. We couldn't reach our own community, especially during COVID, uh, where everybody was using internet as their mo mode of communication. We were being silenced because of our, our, our name. So having this name that is more neutral, that still ties us to our roots is so important. Absolutely. Yeah. And I will also add, you know, I this name change obviously came from uh, a necessity, but I also think, you know, we would have eventually had to do a rebrand at one point or another, no matter what, maybe, maybe or not change our name. Um, but it's just important to keep in mind, um, you know, uh, things evolve, like what people connect to evolves sexuality and the study of sexuality is continuing to evolve. So we as an organization that 
talks about sexuality also must evolve and that's like par for the course so i think while again this did come from like a really big need and um you know something we had to do to really grow um i do think it also really uh presented an exciting opportunity for us to rethink um you know some of our visual aspects which hadn't been updated since our inception and what are people connecting with these days um, and really kind of going back to our roots of the way we talk on social media, the way we talk in our blog posts, the way we talk in our workshops of um, how are we best reflecting our values in everything we communicate and um, are we meeting the current moment with the most up-to-date um, resources and like ways of communicating that we possibly can. So um yeah just to say that uh i i think there was a real uh you know the, the benefit of the name change itself but also the benefit of getting that uh the name change pushing us to revisit some of those things which i think is just good good communications practices <laughs> absolutely and i think we've seen that that change and how we're we're communicating and how we're we're trying to reach out to the community and how we bring new mediums to communicate like this podcast like this podcast exactly <laughs> exactly yeah self-plug so. right there <laughs> <laughs> exactly no it's really cool and it's like um i i mean for me personally i don't know if you feel the same Vima, but i think it's so um it's just so great to work for an organization that does does evolve, that is changing, is constantly self-reflecting. Um, because just like we said with sex, if you're just like, oh, ABC works, and then you do that for the rest of your life, like that gets boring. And I think it's the same with work. So um, yeah, no, I'm really proud that we are so agile in that way and have um, just continued to roll with the punches and just embrace this new chapter. Um, and yeah, we've loved being ship and it's, uh, produce some great puns too, which we're a, we're a punny group. <laughs> yeah, definitely. It's, it makes for a really fun meeting. So obviously, um, and also I love the logo. I just wanted to say, because I can't show it on the podcast, but you can see it on our, on our Instagram the, the new logo is, is beautiful. Um, so thanks to Boca Host to, for putting that together. Yes, they were amazing. And um, yeah, really captured our spirit. I think it really um, represents who we are. And it's just like fun to look at, which we're fun. Or <laughs> we think we're fun. We think we're fun. <laughs> we're fun in like a fun aunt kind of way. And I love it. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. We, uh, <laughs> uh, on our communications committee, we talk about that a lot. We're, we're the fun aunt or like the cool neighbor who knows, who knows a lot, who you would go to with a question. <laughs> yeah. Um, so talking a little bit about the future branding of sexuality and sexuality related organizations, what would be like the one thing that you would tell everybody, this is where you should be heading because this is where we should be heading? Yeah. Um, well, I think just um, reiterating a little bit that last point, um, that agility aspect of uh, whoever you are, you know, values are something that um, you want to stick to, of course, and um, be faithful to, but um, all the other parts of a brand really do um, 
they can evolve and they should evolve. So having some flexibility in that, I think is really important because it really does embrace what sexuality is all about, um, which is vast and ever evolving. Um, And then I think we're starting to see more of this, but I'm still, uh, you know, excited for it to continue. Uh, You know, just again, sexuality is so diverse and, uh, our world is diverse and everybody, you know, encounters sexuality in some way, shape or form. Um, so seeing that reflected back from companies and organizations in sexuality of showing different bodies, um, all different people really recognizing different expressions of sexuality, um, all of those different facets and not just uh, subscribing to one idea of sex um, and making sure that's reflected is I think really important and really where we're going to see where, where I hope to see um, people going next. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Seeing different bodies, different, different colors, different looks, different abilities, and seeing that all, all of humanity is sexual in nature in some way or another. So having a, a clear representation of, all of humanity and not just one flavor will be great to see because then you can see yourself in it. Um, I was, I follow this influencer on Instagram because we, we already said that we're both very social media people. (laughs) Um, And she was showing a new pictures that she had um, commissioned for her. She's called the Volva blog. I think she was, she had commissioned prints of different vulvas and how they looked when they were I want to say calm but that's not the word (laughs) and when they were aroused and she showed different skin colors because in all all the books that I've ever read about vulvas they've always been the this nice light fair skin color and then rosy pink when they're aroused now I am a Latina. I am not white. <laughs> so that was not something that I could see myself in. And if I were to look at myself and look at those pictures, I would go like, but that's not how I look. So I'm not sure what I'm looking at right now. Right. That's so important. I know. And it's really, I mean, it's pretty shameful that like, we're just starting to see more of that. Like really we're way too late (laughs) to be uh jumping on that bandwagon but like um and we is a very royal we of the sexuality community um but yeah no i think that's so important um to and also just on the sexual expression front i feel like i don't know growing up all i saw was for uh, a woman to be sexy, she wore black lace and high heels and had red lipstick. And that was like my only perception of sexiness. And like, if that's your sexiness, like that is fantastic. It's great if that works for you. But like, there's also so much more. And I'm really excited to see more media and more brands um, showing that of uh, sexiness looks different for all different people. And it shouldn't, it should feel good. So if like black lace and high heels doesn't feel good to you, then that's not your sexiness. That's not where, how you feel sexually empowered. Right. Um, so I'm really excited to see more variety in that. 
um, yeah, more variety in skin tone and ability. You know, it's worth saying very <laughs> explicitly, like people of all abilities are sexual beings and we don't see that often enough. Um, so yeah, I, I really hope to see more of that. And yeah, as someone who works on chips communications, that's something, uh, that I strive for and that our committee strives for to, um, continue to do better on that front. Um, cause I think there's, uh, so always more, more we could be doing and always more room for improvement. Right. That that's so, so right. <laughs> <laughs> I completely lost my train of thought because I was just listening, <laughs> which happens way too often. All right. So we're coming up at the top of the hour. So that means it's time for a new section that we just unveiled on last episode. So we'll just go with punches right now. Um, so this is called the hot questions time. I have a, a list of questions for you that you haven't seen before and they are completely unrelated to the topics we've talked. And it's just a fun thing to do and i need a better introduction for that section we'll work on that <laughs> i'm ready I'll just, I'll just put a pin on that one all right first one pepsi or coke Ooh, coke marvel or dc Ooh, uh hot take neither <laughs> <laughs> i need to find my nerds somewhere <laughs> i know i'm sorry i i know i will get hate for that uh, but i truly couldn't even tell you which one is which <laughs> Fair. I'll, I'll, I'll allow it. Um, so wrong answer only. Why is there fuss on a tennis ball? Ooh. <laughs> um, so my dog uh, looks like uh, he has like a Grinch beard when he's uh, done eating them. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Um, favorite ice cream flavor? Mint chocolate chip. Ooh, that's a good one. And finally, what does a uh, let's ask that one again? <laughs> what sound does a fox make? Oh my god! Like, what does the fox say? Yep. Ding, 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 ding. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that just took me back to like a very specific time. <laughs> New memory unlocked. <laughs> Oh my gosh, that's too funny. Um, I have a good friend who did that song in his acapella group in college. And oh I may God. or may not have to link to that video when this episode is posted. And you definitely have to link it I in the comments. I, <laughs> I think I have to. <laughs> All right. Well, um, any last advice for our listeners before we let you go? Um. Yeah, I think I'll just, I, we said it uh, close to the top of the episode, but I think I'll just repeat, because um, it's so important that being a good advocate, publicist, activist, whatever you want to call it for sexuality, um, does not require being an expert, because I, it, it's forever evolving. We're all, uh, even experts are continuing to learn. So um you know, it takes just openness and um, a curiosity and uh, awareness of other resources. So um, don't be afraid to jump into these conversations, even if you might be wrong, because I think we're all wrong sometimes. <laughs> so uh, just having some of that bravery is a really important, um, important step for the sexuality community to continue to move forward. 
Very well said. Uh, so thank you so much for joining us today. Um, people can find you on Instagram at Gwen underscore Rosen. Did yes. I get that right? Yes. <laughs> um, and if you can't find her, just go to ship and then um, jump on the ship and then you can find her too. <laughs> that yes. was a terrible fun. <laughs> <laughs> Come on board. Uh, we'd love to have you as shipmates. No, but really, uh, I'd love to connect with you all. And thank you so much, Vima. This was so fun. Awesome. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Virgin Territory, a podcast by SHIP, a nonprofit organization dedicated to providing culturally inclusive, medically accurate, and pleasure-guided sexuality education, therapy, and professional training to adults. You can visit us online at weknowship.org.